You can turn your Bibles uh, to the book of Philippians. Over the next four uh, Eucharist services, so the next eight weeks, we're going to spend time in this letter of Paul to the church at Philippi. Um, and I've entitled the series, Christ-like. Um, I'm very excited about this time that we're going to spend here, and there's so many places where we could go and focus, but as I read through this book and sat in it uh, for us as a church, I just was struck over and over and over again by how much language in this letter Paul uses about how he's being made and we are being made like Christ. What it is to follow Jesus and, and the incredible change that makes in our lives when he is Lord, when we, when we live into a relationship with Jesus, when we believe into him. Uh, and so let me read for you today. I won't read the, every um, two weeks will be in a different of the four chapters. Uh, so we're in chapter one this week. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I do really, I said in our newsletter this week, but I encourage you throughout this next eight weeks to spend some time in this letter. When you're in your own times of prayer and things, sit in it, meditate upon it. When your home gatherings will be coming to it, but just read this, this letter. Um, I'm going to read for us today just from verse uh, 19. And so I'll read the kind of second half of chapter one. Paul says to the church of Philippi, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absence, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, stirring, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. This letter uh, to the church at Philippi, just a little bit of quick background for you. Um, Philippi was a, was a Roman city. It had originally been a Greek city, but when Rome kind of took out uh, Greece, they took over most of these cities. And it became, Philippi didn't just sort of become a Roman city because Rome said so. They became a very Roman city, even in their culture and in their way. They really were uh, very Roman. Um, and from reading some of the historians and things, it seems like one of those cities that really sort of embodied what it was to be Roman, especially as it related to the way they saw things like civilization, government, day-to-day -day life. Um, it was the first church that Paul planted in Macedonia. And so if you go back in the Bible to Acts chapter 16, you see this part of Paul's life and ministry where um, you'll remember in Acts chapter 16, he, let me read you just these two verses. It's kind of... As we head into this um, book, I think it's actually kind of cool to just take into account this incredible call of God on Paul's life, where it says in uh, Acts 16, 9 and 10, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so this is sometimes referred to as the Macedonian call. Uh, Paul is, you know, serving in, in more of a Judeo context inside of that dysphoria, but being called out into Macedonia is really stepping out. Like sometimes I don't think we realize um, what Paul was doing and how mind-blowing this would have been to the rest of the church. To take the good news of Jesus out into Macedonia was really to begin to walk into this great commission call to take it to the nations. So Paul is stepping out into this, into this place, and one of the very first cities that he anchors down in is Philippi. Um, there at Philippi, Paul has an encounter with a woman named Lydia, and so we have this incredible story of her conversion, and Lydia seems to become someone who helps to house the church a bit. They seem to be meeting in her house, and so there's conversion happening there and the Lord beginning to really do something. And we also see that while he's in Philippi, he's continuing, God is continuing to go with him in power. So he's going in boldness with an incredible message, but that message is accompanied by power, and he's praying, and they're seeing signs, and they're seeing wonders, and the people around who are seeing this are coming to a place where they realize, oh wow, this is, this is someone worth listening to. What is this message? And as they listen, lots of people are coming to faith in Jesus, and the result is that the church at Philippi be comes established. So Paul has found himself, whether he thought of it this way or not, in, in the business of church planting. Partway through the signs and wonders, Paul ends up praying uh, over someone that the, their, their demon possession, they would be released from this demon possession. And when he prays this, they are released from their demon possession. It's actually kind of, if you uh, want to go back to Acts 16 and read the story, it's actually kind of written, I, it always makes me smile. It's kind of a fun story in some respects because um, this person continues to, in their possession, almost just like drive Paul crazy. He just keeps calling out these you know, things about who Jesus is, but in a way that's quite disruptive. And it almost looks like Paul finally gets so fed up that he just casts the demon out of her. You know, he's just like, oh my goodness, just out you know, in the name of Jesus. But the problem is that when this person is uh, released from their bondage, they also lose some power that was being used by their family to make money. And so in their mind, they just get enraged. Because what's happened is they've lost their livelihood. And this enraging kind of thing means that right here in the beginning of his call in Macedonia, Paul finds himself in prison. And then prison, this is where we find him and Silas, and they're in worship in the prison. They're, you know, you just can't take these guys down. They're, they're just like, great, now we're in prison, so let's tell the people in prison about Jesus. And they're there, and through that, the jailer who's caring for them comes to faith. And it says that him and his whole family come to faith. So you kind of see this, this church now that this letter is written to, Acts 16 is its inception. And so we come now back to Philippians, and Paul is here again writing to this Philippian church, but again from prison. So it's interesting that his kind of beginnings with this church uh, take him to prison really quickly. But here he is writing them again, saying, I would love to be with you, but I literally can't be. I'm behind bars. You know? But he's also thanking them for who they are as a church, for their faithfulness, for their care, for the way that they're reaching out to him. And he's writing to them, it seems, in part because he knows they're worried about him. And so he wants to report back and just 
um, kind of put some of their cares at ease. But he does this from, an, uh, from a place of prison. And it's interesting to me, and for our um, message today, I think it's important for us to recognize, here we have this interesting thing happening. Paul, having obeyed this call of God, it was pretty incredible. Like he literally sees a vision of someone from Macedonia calling him over. And like he says, we just concluded from this, this is what we were called to do by God. And Paul's response, his yes to that, keeps landing him in prison. In that Acts 16 passage, before he goes to prison, he's attacked and brutally beaten. Like he says yes to Jesus, and these kinds of things keep happening. So here we are again, we find him in in prison. Paul's main concern there from prison, if you look at what I just read in Philippians 1 verse 20, is mind-blowing to me and incredibly inspiring. There he is in prison, having said yes to Jesus, and to think that his imprisonment, um, don't underestimate it. The reality of it is he was in prison with the very likely um, option in front of him of execution. So Paul's in prison, and this could literally cost him his life. And his greatest concern, his chief focus, is that Christ would be honored. He says to the Philippian church, don't worry too much about me. I actually want to encourage you in this, that I can see that what is happening here with me in prison is actually God at work. People are hearing the good news of Jesus. And all I'm concerned with is that. Kind of amazing. This letter to the Philippians is one that is marked throughout it by joy. And I want you to just like think about this, but remember, like he's writing it from prison. And it is just so joy-filled. It is marked by deep heart of thanksgiving. The gratitude of Paul's heart just flows out in this letter written from incarceration, written from wonder about his very life. It's it's marked by a deep love and a deep affection. Paul loves this church. And that love and affection has to it like a pastoral heart. So it's the, the letter is incredibly pastoral. So here's Paul in prison, and he's pastoring people who are on the outside. Right? Incredible to me. It's a pastoral letter, but it's also that pastor's heart, that, that love, that care is incredibly fatherly. And he even uses that language to describe how he feels about this church. That in a way, he says, you know, I birthed you. you I planted this church. I'm like a father to you. And that, that heart in him is like that of a father who deeply loves his kids. But at the very core of the letter, and the thing that stood out the most to me as I've studied it over the past few weeks in preparation for this, is the Christological center of this letter. That if you read through this letter, you'll see Jesus and a a Christology, a belief about who he is and what he's doing and his centrality to the fullness of this picture and to Paul's very life, certainly the life of the church, but also to his individual life, is throughout it. It just just bubbles over the, the edges of this letter over and over and over and over. In Philippians verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, so the passage kind of before I read, it's this interesting piece of Paul saying, I'm in prison, but this suffering, I have a perspective on this that I want you to understand because I know you're worried about me and I know you're seeing it through a lens that makes sense. I mean, if someone you love is in prison, there is some trouble to that. You're, there's worry there that makes sense. But Paul wants to say, I have a bit of a different perspective. Here's the deal. 
Christ is in all. I'm not here because he dropped the ball. And in fact, here, I ask the question, what does it look like to live Christ out here in this place? And as I'm doing that, we're seeing the gospel extend to lives that it probably wouldn't have touched otherwise. So it's an incredible posture. And it's be easy enough to kind of think it was just sort of like semantic or lip service, except that Paul's actually in jail wondering how this is going to end. What's going on here? What brings this focus about? Is Paul crazy? Is he sleep deprived? Is he sort of like one of these guys who's just gotten too, you know, heavenly minded to be any earthly good? Like what is going on here with this guy? I think there's ways in which to hear something like this from someone like Paul in his situation. I'm going to be honest. I think sometimes to hear those kinds of things actually bugs us. I remember John Wimber talking about that, the guy who started the vineyard, about when he'd had cancer. And he would, he would live in this space of suffering with this kind of attitude, with this kind of heart. And he talked about how offensive that was to some. I think it's good for us to recognize that what Paul's doing, what he's saying here, is being written to people who also love him. This might not have just been easy to, to, to hear. But I think what's going on could be summed up in chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says this, and I think this is a, a verse that really gives understanding to the whole of the letter. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Here's the difference for Paul. What is going on? What is, it is that he does not only say this because it's the right thing for a pastor to say to his church. He says it because it's the core of his bones. In essence, what we could say, we could sum it up in this. Paul has died. Paul sees his life as finished in many ways. And his life now that he lives is to Christ. In Galatians 2, chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 20, Paul puts it this way: I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. After the life I now live, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So it, it's not going too far to say that Paul, in his perspective of who he is, and where, Paul has died, and Christ now lives. And so in the flesh, Paul is still alive. You can't write letters if you're not. But in very real ways, his perspective is marked by this having died. And this is exactly what it looks like for anyone to follow Jesus. Now, this is the challenging part of this letter. Paul's not just sort of showing you what it looks like to be a super saint. Later in this letter, Paul will literally say to the church, follow my example. Imitate me. That this is actually what it looks like to follow Jesus. This isn't sort of the A-team or the clergy, or, 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 or the, those who have been following Jesus for 70 years and have somehow, somewhere along that way, tripped upon the secret and now kind of lived the super Christian life. This is the Christian life, full stop. And let me show you why I say that. We're going to come back now, if you turn to Matthew chapter 8, to the gospel passage that Sarah read for us, where Jesus calls people to be his disciples. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself 
Take up my cross and follow me. And he anchors that in his own life and example. So Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 31, if you've got it in front of you, you can kind of look along as I talk through this. But Paul has heard this call from Jesus, not just with his ears, but with the depth of his soul. Not first and foremost a call to Macedonia, but first and foremost a call to lay his life down for the sake of the gospel. A, a call to be one with Christ, to join him in death, and so to walk in life and life to the full. To follow Jesus is to go the way of the cross. So if you look at Matthew 8, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. He's saying to his disciples, you need to follow, and right after this he's going to say, follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you need to follow me. Before he says that, he says, the Son of Man must suffer. And so, those who follow him too can expect the same. This is like the, this is the most encouraging message this morning. Don't worry, it will be by the end. But I want us to hear the weight of that, the invitation of that. I think sometimes as Christians, we encounter suffering and we think something must have gone wrong. Tragically, over and over again, I wrestle with myself, but as I walk with others, I hear these, this, this kind of whisper of the wonder that maybe something went wrong. And I'll be honest, a lot of us think it, it, I did something wrong. That our immediate thought in suffering is that either God isn't who he said he is, or that he's not holding up his end of the deal, or that I've not held up my end of the deal. And it probably depends on what season of life you're in, what suffering you're facing, how it begins to play in your head. But what I want to point out is that Jesus was always so clear, and Paul caught this, and that's, I think, why we see the kind of man we see in Paul. He caught it, that suffering is actually a part of what it is to follow Jesus, because we follow the one who said to us himself, the Son of Man must suffer. That it's actually the road of the cross. Right? So Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is the language of suffering, that we join Christ in this place. It's exactly what it means to follow Jesus. I want to share with you this morning uh, some quotes from um, Bonhoeffer's book on discipleship. And so the first one here, and Anya, I'll get you to just kind of follow along with me. I don't think it's all on one slide. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book on discipleship, the fourth chapter is entitled Discipleship and the Cross. And I'm going to post with my sermon online that chapter if you want to read it this week. Uh, it is just gold. You won't be able to read it fast, because it's not because it's hard to read, but just because it's so good. It's so thick. But let me read you a couple of quotes today. Dietrich said this, It is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering that everyone has to experience is the call which summons us away from our attachments to this world. It's the death of the old self in the encounter with Jesus Christ. Those who enter into discipleship enter into Jesus' death. They turn their living into dying. Such has been the case from the very beginning. The cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. 
Instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. Summed up shortly, Dietrich also said this, discipleship is being bound to the suffering of Christ. Potent statements. Good statements for us to reflect on. What does this mean? What does this look like? Make no mistake, these ideas, this, this, this thought, this call of Jesus, when it's heard clearly, is actually very offensive to the self. Have you ever wrestled with this experience of suffering having said yes to Jesus? Have you ever had these moments, and I'm going to tell you, I could go on for a while, where you feel like I said yes to Jesus, and it's costing me more than I had agreed to? I said yes, you know, I get these places where we sit in our lives and we say, Jesus, I laid it all on the line for you. Why is this happening to me? Right? These are very real and honest places. And what I'm not trying to do this morning is encourage you to escape them or avoid them. I'm inviting you this morning to meet Jesus in them and to have very real conversations with him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be joined with him in his suffering. It's not to figure your suffering out on your own so that you can be with Jesus. Jesus wants to meet you right where you are in the things you're walking through. So it's not about ignoring or even trying to downplay the very true cost of discipleship. But it is about trying to say, this is actually expected. This is actually the way of Jesus. It is costly. But many of us have had these moments where in the place of suffering, we've asked very understandable questions of why. Why? And especially when it feels like I've just been trying to do everything right. Let me read you another quote from Bonhoeffer that I found quite encouraging. He said this, the fact that it's Peter... He's speaking of this space where um, we just read in the gospel passage we read about where Peter says, you know, no, never. You know, and he has to say, don't get behind me, Satan. He says this, the fact that it's Peter, the rock of the church, who makes himself guilty, doing this just after he confessed Jesus to be the Christ and has been commissioned by Christ, shows that from its very beginning, the church has taken offense at the suffering of Christ. So have you felt that? Have you been in that space? You are in great company. It makes sense. It does not want that kind of Lord. And as Christ's church, it does not want to be forced to accept the law of suffering from its Lord. When we refuse to die to ourselves... When we refuse to allow ourselves to accept this reality in following Jesus, our yes to Jesus can quickly become full of an entitlement. The yes we've said to Jesus suddenly takes on board a sense of owed. So yes, I said yes to Jesus, but now he owes me. 
because I gave my everything for him. And so when suffering comes, we're offended. Right? But when, like Paul, we catch what, I'm, what, what I want to point to now is a life-giving revelation that we can die to ourselves, our yes to Jesus loses that. Our yes to Jesus doesn't need fairness. It doesn't need repayment. Things like our rights, things like injustice in our lives, things they take a different toll. They take a different impact on who we are. Because no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Paul can literally say, whether I live or I die, we're good. Yeah, I followed Jesus. Yes, it landed me in his prison. Yes, this could end my life ultimately. But whether I live or I die, we're good. Wow. Lord, that we would have this revelation in that kind of a life-changing way. Friends, to follow Christ always means the way of the cross. It is the way of Jesus. It's good news. When we become Christ-like, by following Christ's example, and we die to ourselves, our living, having died, our living actually can become a platform. Our suffering actually can become an opportunity for the gospel. Suffering, injustice, persecution, even death, become places of communion with Christ. And so opportunities to share him with the world around us. And the question that begins to strike my heart is, Chad, what matters most to you? And I'm inspired by Paul who would say what matters most to me is that the people around me would encounter Jesus. Through the church's history, uh, you can spend some time talking to Jonathan. He's been looking at some of this in his coursework at Regent this semester. We have the martyrs. Who, who become known in the tradition as witnesses. Isn't that interesting? That, that to think of martyrdom as witness. That in their oneness with Christ, in their ultimate union with Christ, in the place of suffering, they testify to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see it already in Acts chapter 6-7 when Stephen goes, right? And he sits in the middle of his execution. Fully unjust. There is no justice happening in this moment. It is suffering, and the suffering is completely uncalled for. And we see him in full worship, and anyone there, even there to execute, hears the gospel and sees Jesus. Witness. That I might know him and be made like him. This is the prayer that I want us to pray over the next eight weeks together. And it comes out of the language of Paul in Philippians, that I might know him and be made like him. In a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel, we must learn the way of Jesus. I think it's always important. 
the disciple of Christ is called to the way of Jesus, but I think there is a way in which in the world we live in, certainly here in the West Coast, in this um, secular society, in the, it becomes more and more hostile to the culture, the world around us, to Jesus, to his church, to the way. We need to learn the way of Jesus. Because I think we're going to find ourselves in places like Paul found himself more and more. Where saying yes to Jesus begins to cost us in ways that are really felt, that feel unjust. And this starts when, like Paul, we die and are raised to life in Christ. Paul said in Colossians 3.3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He speaks to those who've been baptized, who've gone down into the waters of baptism. They have died and been risen to life in Christ, whose old life is done and whose new life now is lived. And that new life can walk through the storms of suffering, can stand in the place of temptation, can stand in the place of oppression, can stand in the place of confusion, because the old has died and the new has come. In Matthew chapter 11, 30, there's this beautiful passage that we've talked about lots in the past couple of months. It's this one where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, weary, I'll give you rest. And then he calls us to this yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Can we be honest this morning? What I'm talking about doesn't sound very easy, and it doesn't sound very light. Fair? So what's going on here? The same God who called you to follow him and said, you know what that looks like? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Be ready to just embrace and stand in the place of injustice and suffering in your life says, but don't worry, it's an easy burden, a light yoke. Huh? I, it's right for us to go, God help me, I'm missing something. So if in any way you hear that and you're, you're there with me right now, I, just stay there. And I want to read another quote from Bonhoeffer before we close. Make sure that's the right. Jesus called all who were laden with various sufferings and burdens to throw off their yokes and to take his yoke upon themselves. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. His yoke and his burden is the cross. Now those two sentences together grab the tension I'm, I'm sitting in right now. Right? His yoke is, his yoke is easy and his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke and his burden is the cross. Bearing the cross does not bring misery and despair. Here's why. Here's why this, this, this is what alleviates the tension, what makes it true. Rather, it provides refreshment and peace for our souls. It is our greatest joy. Here, we are no longer laden with the self-made laws and burdens, but with the yoke of him who knows us and who himself goes with us under that same yoke. Under his yoke, we are assured of his nearness and communion. 
It is he himself whom disciples find when they take up their cross. Friends, when you deny yourself and take up your cross, you'll find Jesus. You'll find the one who conquered death, who conquered hell and the grave. And you'll find that you're yoked to him. The call to follow Jesus and so to die sounds so heavy to those who fail to understand that Christ's call to suffer death of self for the sake of Christ and other is actually a call to resurrection life. When Jesus calls us to die, when he calls us to lay our lives down, he is ultimately calling us to life and life to the full. He just knows that as long as you cling to the self, you can never walk in it. And so Paul says, having understood this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, let's pray together. This is the prayer that I might know him and be made like him. At home. So think about home, your, your, your place and your roles there. We pray, we pray this prayer over our, our places of employment, over places of work. Think about yourself and your, your place at work, the people that you interact with, what your responsibilities are, how you walk in these places. In school, in study, in places of recreation, in places of rest. that we would pray, Lord, today that we might know you and be made like you. And as we pray this prayer, I want to remind you again that we are only made Christ-like when we first die, allowing Christ to take over. But to pray this prayer that I might know him and be made like him actually requires a choice on our part again today to say it's fruitless for me to pray this prayer if I'm not willing to die. If I won't let my, lay my life down, this prayer will not be answered. And so part of praying this prayer is a choice of discipleship. To fresh again today say, Lord, I give my yes to you. And that yes doesn't have strings attached to it. My only hope, my only desire is that Christ would be honored. That he would be seen and known and glorified. And so, Lord, we do, we pray, and we, we, we bring our lives before you today as disciples of Christ. Lord, make us like you. In these weeks even, right now, we pray acutely, would you come in our lives and teach us, show us, open our eyes to see you. We spend time in this letter of Paul's to the church in Philippi. Would you come and would you open our eyes to see, to learn, to grow? And I give you permission, Lord, to undo us if you need to. To set us free from the prison of self. 
to set us free from this life that we might live life and life to the fullest. I want to give you a